Now, back to uh, Romans chapter 11. Um, we are working our way uh, towards closing Romans 11 off. You understand that the last, the last section, the last paragraph of, um, of uh, Romans 11, beginning at verse 33 through 36, is called the doxology. It's a, it's a doxological passage where things are said in there, folks, that are just as, as profound and as rich and as, um, as I don't know how to... I, just read it and you'll see what I'm talking about. For of him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. I mean, it's just... Um, we'll, we'll get to that the last two weeks, that doxological statement that Paul closes Romans 11's with. However, tonight we're in the, the previous paragraph that starts at verse 28 and goes through verse 32. And uh, unfortunately, this, the, one of the misfortunes of the way that I handle things is I, I, I took the first two sentences of the paragraph, and now I've got to give you the other half of the paragraph, and that's not really good uh, to, to uh, divide a paragraph, but that's the best I can do. Let me read the paragraph for you. We're going to look at verses 30, 31, and 32 tonight. Here we go. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake, but as regards election... They are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. So those last three verses that we're concerned with, verses 30, 31, and 32. Um, we looked last week at the, the irrevocable uh, gifts and calling of God. Uh, I hope you remember some of that. But tonight we jump into verse 30 where, um, let me just take those three verses as a kind of a unit real quick. Uh, he is comparing and contrasting something. There's a parallel that I hope to show you in a moment. But when he says, just as you... Uh, the U's, the Y-O-U's in these three verses are referring to Gentiles. Uh, were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their, those they and theirs in these three verses refers to, uh, to Israel, to Jews. Okay? So that, that's, that's an interpretive uh, key that you know that the U is, is referring to Gentiles and that the they is referring to uh, the, the Jews. Of course, of these three verses, the theme of these three verses is Mercy. You will notice um, that mercy is re- uh, mentioned once in verse 31. It is mentioned twice in verse 30. I mean, once in 30, twice in 31, and then again in 32. Uh, this is about mercy. Now, let me just draw your attention to one other little item. He uses language which is somewhat odd. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of the disobedience, because of their disobedience. It's, it, it seems like he ought to be using language like this. Uh, just as you were at one time unbelieving uh, towards God, but now have received mercy because of their unbelief. But he doesn't use that term. He uses the term disobedience. Um, and I have to tell you that there are those who would love to suggest to you that here is a, a proof text to demonstrate that the way one gets right with God is ultimately through obedience and disobedience. Obedience gets you right. Disobedience gets you wrong. Now, the reason I draw your attention to that, guys, is because obedience is a term that is often used um, in the place of, as a synonym for believing. Let let me show you, if you'd like to see, in Romans chapter 1, verse 5. 
you get a statement like this. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. <laughs> Guys, um, uh, faith is, is, is something that always leads to obedience. And so when Paul is describing uh, an unbelieving world here in Romans 11, he can use the term disobedience. Let, let me show you one other illustration or one other instance. If you can find this real quick, Genesis 6. Remember what Genesis 6 was? Uh, it's, a, it's a very difficult passage. Uh, Genesis 6 is. That's where the Nephilim are mentioned. <laughs> but anyway, it's where God says, and every thought of the intents of their heart was oval, only evil continually. He's disgusted with creation, and so he goes to Noah, and he says, Noah, I want you to build a boat because he's, gonna, he's about to send a flood. Um, look at, uh, and, and then he gives you the, the, the details of the, of the, of the ark. Uh, look at verse um, 14. Uh, gopher wood, uh, rooms, um, this is how you're to, the length of 300 cubits, uh, 50 cubits, etc. He gives you the details of, the, um, of how he wants the ark built. Here's what I want you to see. Look at verse 22. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Now, gang, why did Noah do all that God commanded him? Because Noah believed that God was indeed going to send a flood. Here's my point. All obedience, ultimately, no, all gospel obedience, ultimately flows out of faith. And all disobedience flows out of unbelief. If we obey with a gospel mind, with a gospel intent, with a gospel heart, with a gospel motive, it's because we believe God. I, I, I do this because I believe that what God has said is true, and in response to my belief that it is true, I obey, just like Noah did. So when Paul comes to describe Gentiles and he says, you were at one time in your disobedience, he could also say something like this. He doesn't, but he could. You were at one time living in your unbelief. Because you see, belief, belief, always, invariably, inevitably leads to obedience. And when obedience is not the, the derivative of, if that's not what you see, then you can pretty well be real assured that there's no faith there. Noah obeyed because he believed, and so do you. So do I. We obey because we believe. Now, um, then he talks about, as I said, he talks about mercy um, but let me show you what he's doing here, guys. It's not that complex, but uh, it is when you read it superficially. He says, you Gentiles were at one time disobedient to God. Way back in the past, I mean, not way back, but just uh, before Christ ever arrived, you were in this disobedience, you Gentiles. But now, you Gentiles have received mercy because of Jewish disobedience. That is, in the midst of their disobedience, God has set them aside so that he can bring Gentiles in. He goes on, and here's the parallel. So they, too, have now been disobedient. The Jews now, presently, are just like you Gentiles used to be. But while they watched me pouring out kindnesses on Jews, now they have been brought in as Gentiles. The same thing's going to happen to them. So they, too, have now been disobedient that is, they're in a present state of disobedience in order that by the mercy shown to you, uh, they may, um, they also may now receive mercy. Do you see? It's pretty simple, guys. He's comparing that Gentiles used to be living in a state of unbelief. 
Jews were uh, this God-chasing people. But then then the, the roles have reversed. Gentiles were disobedient. They were unbelieving. But now they've been brought in. But, he says, later on, the same thing is going to happen. They're in their state of disobedience now. But mercy is going to be displayed to them as well. Remember what he said over in verse... Um, where is it? It's verse 11. Um, uh, Rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. So what's happening is God is now working with Gentiles and the, the, the end result of that is going to be this, this, this jealousy that is going to bring Israel back into the church, back into a posture of belief, back to the place where Christ uh, has be- is acknowledged as their Messiah. That's all he's doing there, guys. But then verse 32 gets kind of... Um, it, it's, not, it's not complex, but it's just... It's unbelievable. <laughs> For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Now, gang, real quick. Do you remember I, I went... I took a whole week one, one Wednesday night to talk about the word all. Here's a place where you don't want to insist that all means each and every because if you insist that all means each and every, if you remember what I taught three weeks ago, then you'd have to be a universalist, that he may have mercy on all. Um, guys, um, what it means here is every type, every kind, both of Jew and Gentile, That is, God has consigned all of every type of both Jew and Gentile to disobedience that he may have mercy on all of every type or every kind of Jew and Gentile. Everybody is on an equal footing with this God and um, the need of us all is that God might display mercy on us. Our salvation, guys, is solely and entirely the result of God's mercy extended to us. So in the end, both Jew and Gentile will look back and they will say, the reason that I'm in this is because of mercy. It's because God in mercy brought me out of my hopeless condition and into a saving faith. He's he's, he's done that in Gentiles and he's going to do it again. He's going to do it in Israel. That's what we've been talking about for low these many weeks. Um, now, here's what I want to do with you. I want to take this paragraph and I want to take you in a different direction that I hope um, will be enormously comforting to you because there's something that goes on in this paragraph, guys, that uh, I want you to see. And here's what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to step away from the trees and try to get a look at the forest. What I, what I did for the first 10 minutes, is, or 15 minutes, is try to give you some details of trying to interpretive details of those three verses. Like use of disobedience and the use of the term, all those are, those are the trees. Now, if you can try to step back and take a panoramic view of this paragraph... And let me show you in one of the things that Paul is doing here. It could, 
well be described, this paragraph could well be described as Paul's philosophy of history. Um, um, you get in here some principles concerning his whole idea and his approach and his philosophy of history. Now, let me, let me show you what I mean. Here's principle number one. Everything is under the rule and the hand and the direction of God. Look at verse 32. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Do you know what Paul is being, is telling you us here, guys? Is that everything that God has done with Gentiles, everything that God has done with Israel is moving forward according to a plan that will conclude in Israel in bulk being brought back into the church. That is, Paul's whole view of history is God has been up to this from the beginning. He has consigned all, all types, all, he, at one time it was Gentiles, but now it's Jews. Why? Because God is, that everything that is unfolding in time and space is under the sovereign direction and the sovereign rule of God. His dealings with Jews, his dealings with Gentiles, or in essence, his dealing with everybody, because that's nobody's left after Jew and Gentiles, his dealings with both of them are a demonstration and a display that history is something that does his bidding. Everything that you see happening to Gentiles, everything that you see happening to Jews is happening because God is unfolding this control of His. Now, gang, here we go. That ought to be something... That, that, that ought to be enormously assuring to us. Um, there is a joy to be had in, in understanding what Paul is saying about God's control of history. There is, there, there is a certainty that we ought to, that ought to quiet our queasy stomachs when we're worried about whether we're going to lose our jobs or not. Because God is ultimately in control of all of history. But we don't get the benefit of that. There, there is a joy that is available that we miss out on, um, because, because of a couple of things. When, when I say to you, what, what you see here is Paul's philosophy of history, that God has been doing this with Gentiles for a millennia. He's been doing this with Jews and He's going to unfold it at the end and because He's in control. When I say that to you, it ought to be enormously comforting to us. But it's not. Because there's a couple of things that, that jump into our minds. The first thing is, well, well, if He is in sovereign control of all of history, then, then what about free will? Um, we ought to be enjoying the fact that history is under the sovereign domain of God, but we're not enjoying it because we're still, you know, well, what about, are my, do my choices really mean anything or not mean anything? And, and we address this on numerous occasions in the past, but let me just real quickly. Guys, in the minds of most, I don't know, evangelicals, I guess, it is in their minds an either or an or. Either I am free and my choices mean something, or I am not free and God is in charge and my choices mean nothing. It's an either or. 
I told you and I've told you and I've, I've begged you to consider this. It doesn't have to be either or and it is not the presentation of this book. It is both and. That is that my choices are, I am responsible for my choices and my choices are all under the sovereign rule and control of God. That's the first thing that troubles us. I, Jimmy Young stands up there and he says, well, God is in control of history. Well, what, what, what about my friend? What about my free will? Because if I don't understand that if he's in control, it doesn't have to be either or, ladies and gentlemen. It can be both and. And that's what this book would suggest is true. But there's another reason we don't enjoy the fact that God is in sovereign control. We don't enjoy that because we begin to wonder, well, wait a minute then. If, his, if he is in control of everything, then, then why did that happen? You know, you know what the that is, don't you? It's a bad thing. If he's in control, why did that happen? Why did I get the swine flu? Why didn't I go through a divorce? Why did I lose my job? If he's in, I mean, wait a minute. That is inconsistent with my understanding of the love of God. Gang, listen to me. God, while ruling everything, permits things to happen which don't appear or, or appear to be the exact opposite of what I think He should be doing. If you want an example, ladies and gentlemen, the, the book of Job is a classic illustration. It's a, it's a classic illustration because the devil in that book is under the rule of God. You did realize that, don't you? The devil has great powers, but he's not a free agent. God has permitted him to operate. And he has permitted evil. And though evil is contrary to God indeed, it is still under His sovereign rule and His sovereign direction. God is not the author of sin, but sin is not out of the control or under, out from underneath His control. And He even uses it to accomplish His purposes. You want an illustration? How about the death of Jesus? Is that, is that decent enough? He uses sin to accomplish what he would have accomplished. Guys, um, we, we're talking here about a very difficult subject, and that is the origin of evil, where evil comes from. And here's my best shot. Here's my best illustration. This is the best I can do. Uh, if you don't like this one, I got nothing more for you. But imagine for a moment that I am the principal of Houston High School. I'm the principal. I'm the top dog over there, and what I say goes. Well, um, this is just an illustration, just an illustration. And um, in the midst of my being the principal, I get a group of girls who come, they're Wiccans. Everybody know what a Wiccan is? I mean, those are witches on steroids. Those are, those are serious witches. And these witches come to me and they say, we would like to, we would like to organize a, a Wiccans club here at Houston High School. And, um, well, I'm a Christian as the, you know, the head of that school. And I think, Wiccans? I don't want Wiccans on my campus. And I said, uh, and I said to him, uh, you know, give me, a, give me a night, let me think about it. The next day I come back, meet with the Wiccans, and I say to them, yes, 
You can have your club. Go right ahead. And here's my thought. Here's my motive. I'm thinking that the Christians that I see in my school have really become complacent. They're kind of, they're kind of, um, uh, you know, just got caught up in all the, the materialism stuff. And so I'm thinking that maybe, just maybe, if these Wiccans start to have their meetings, that it might, that it might rile the Christians to the place where they will begin to protect the things that are precious to them. Now here's the point. Did I create evil? As the principle, I didn't create it. Did I permit it? I did. And why did I permit it? I permitted it for what I hoped would be an ultimate good. Now, guys, my point is this. I am saying to you that Paul is giving you a philosophy of history. His philosophy is his history. And here's principle number one. Principle number one is God is in charge of of everything that unfolds in the course of human history. That ought to be comforting to us, but it's not. And we miss out on the joy of that, that, that certainty because we're concerned about our free will and we, we, we don't like the idea that bad things happen. Guys, yes, God, while ruling everything, permits things to happen that appear to be contrary to what we would have expected out of him. Yes. But that doesn't mean he's not in control. He is using it. Using evil, permitting it to exist to accomplish his ultimate goals. Now, here's the second principle of of Paul's philosophy of history. And it flows out of number one. Number two is this. God has a plan and a purpose which will be carried out in its minutest detail. How about that? (laughs) Um, If you have missed that in your study of the Bible, you have missed one of the central messages of the Bible. And I'm telling you guys, it doesn't take very, it takes very little effort to, to confirm that, that principle even in our own lives. Let me see if I can do it for you. Um, do you know why? I'm teaching you what I'm teaching you here tonight. Well, I'm teaching you this because I went to a seminary in Jackson, Mississippi that taught me um, the great principles of the Reformation. Well, why did you go to that seminary? Well, I went to that seminary because at that time um, I had become a Christian in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and my pastor suggested either that one or one in Philadelphia, and I didn't want to go to the north, so I went to the one in the south. Well, why did you go to that church in Fort Lauderdale? Well, um, uh, we, a man married us that sent us a note, and we ended up um, uh, we ended up going to that church. Well, why were you in Fort Lauderdale? Well, I was in Fort Lauderdale because Procter and Gamble had hired us and moved us to Fort Lauderdale to, to work for Procter and Gamble. Well, how did you get the job at at, at uh, Procter and Gamble? Well, I got the job because Procter & Gamble wrote a letter to my head baseball coach at the University of Tennessee asking if there was any graduating seniors who had a, were interested in a career in sales. And my coach gave Procter & Gamble my name. Well, how did you get that coach? Well, I got that coach because there was a, 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 a scout for the San Francisco Giants who thought I could really play. He wrote Bill Wright and said, you need to get this kid. He can, he can play. So Bill Wright, never seeing me play, leaning, the guy's name was Skinny Walker. 
he called, uh, he leaning on what Skinny Walker said, he was a scout for the San Francisco Giants, he offered me a scholarship. But why did Skinny Walker see you play? Well, Skinny Walker saw me play because I, I played on a team that was really a hot shot team and we won the state that year and they came in second the year before. Well, why did you play on that team? Well, because my daddy, when I was about 10 years old, thought I had a decent baseball future. And so he took me out to Geisman Park to play on a team called the 15 Dads. Ladies and gentlemen, do you know why I'm teaching what I'm teaching tonight? It's because of the 15 dads. Do any of you believe that any of that was an accident? Do you? No, you don't. I don't. I believe that God has been, was steering and directing and pushing and urging and nudging all along. Because the second principle, ladies and gentlemen, of Paul's philosophy of history is that there is a plan and a purpose which we carried out to the minutest detail. You know, guys, um, we may, we may agree with that. We may know of, or we may agree that the plan exists, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but in the midst of knowing that there is a plan, God has left us with considerable ignorance as to the timing and the details of that plan. Just like Romans 11. He tells you, all Israel will be saved. He doesn't tell you when. He doesn't tell you how. Is it going to be gradual? Is it going to be sudden? Is it going to be all at once? Who's going to do it? Where's the preaching? He doesn't tell you any of that. He simply says, all Israel will be saved. And that's as far as he goes. I don't know what God has... I mean, I could be dead tomorrow. I don't know about the details and the timing, but I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, God has a plan that he is unfolding in the minutest detail for your life as well as mine. If you want to see, well, we don't have time for that. Here's the third principle. This plan that God has is a plan of redemption. It is a, it is a plan that has included a salvation that is altogether and entirely wrought by God himself. It is not dependent upon man to, to be accomplished in, the, in any degree. If it were, it would fail. God has a plan. It is a redemptive plan. He is working it out to the minutest detail. And it is a redemptive plan that doesn't depend on mankind in any way. Let me tell you four quick things, three quick things, and I'm done. That is what I think you see. If you step back from the paragraph 28 to 32 and you see what Paul is saying about how God is moving among Gentiles and Jews to accomplish His glorious end, it's His philosophy of history. Right there. Now, so what does that mean? First of all, guys, in our lives, in the midst of I had a parent say to me tonight, she said, well, yesterday she dumped her applesauce in her chair and then she took off all her clothes and stood on the coffee table and went to the bathroom. <laughs> well, 
in that life, in the midst of all of the messes of our lives, ladies and gentlemen, in, in all those messes, things are not always what they appear to be on the surface. Guys, if you would look at this chapter from a, from a pen or, and you think, the most improbable thing that I've ever heard of is that, is that Israel is going to be saved. I mean, look around you. Ever since the Holocaust, they have despised Christians. They've despised the Christian church. And very frankly, we've earned it. We deserve their hatred. How could something like that happen? Not, not the, as the, from what I can see presently. No, ladies and gentlemen, because things are not always what they appear to be on the surface. Try to imagine yourself Job for a moment. And you don't have the slightest idea that there's this contest that's unfolded between God and Satan as to what, what's going to happen in the life of Job. All he knows is he's lost his family and his health. And you know what? Sometimes that's all you know too. All I know is I've lost my family and I've lost my health. But I'm here to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, things are not always what they appear to be on the surface. We look at we look at the 21st century postmodern man and we think, oh, how is the church ever going to survive? Unbelief has won. I mean, look at Washington. I just heard Jeff just sent something out this week that our president is not going to observe the National Day of Prayer tomorrow. First time in how long? Unbelief wins. Folks, you cannot understand the message of Romans 11 and say something that foolish. Do you not think it would appear to the Apostle Paul, how in the world is Israel going to be saved? How, how does it appear to you and me? How could that possibly be? Well, Paul says it in verse 23. He says, and even they, if they do not continue, God will, uh, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. You know, ladies and gentlemen, think about it. You know the story of uh, Paul in Acts 16? He's in the Philippian jail. And I mean, they've been beaten. Him, him and Silas are thrown in the jail and they're chained to these prisoners in a, in a prison and, they're, and they get their, their wounds are oozing blood and, and it's dark and there's rats and there's, it's nasty and Paul and Silas are in there. How could it be any worse? And then what happened? An earthquake. The doors get rattled. And the door springs open and the sailor, and the, the Philippian jailer runs in and says, what must I do to be saved? N -n 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 you know, just about an hour and a half earlier, it couldn't have looked any darker. But you know what, ladies and gentlemen? Things are not always what they appear to be on the surface of the matter. What appears to be a bad thing very well may be the, the, the very thing that God is using or that He has permitted or that He has allowed to accomplish His purposes. He says to us, ladies and gentlemen, all things... No, no, no. He doesn't say that. Back up. He says, 
And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and have called according to His purpose. But I got the swine flu. I'm sorry you got the swine flu, and I, that's, I, that's not a laughing matter. But ladies and gentlemen, I promise you, there is not one maverick molecule that found its way inside your nostril without His permission. And what is He up to? I don't know. But it's going to be good. But I'm going to lose my job. I'm a, I don't know. I don't know. On the surface of it, it looks bad. Just like it looked here when Paul said, and he is able to graft them back in so that his promises can be kept. My brother and sister in Christ, I leave you with this. Learn to live without answers. Learn to live with unanswered whys. You know what they call that? They call that faith. Learn to look at a promise that you have and construct life accordingly. Because God is in control of everything facet of human history. He is moving it to His desired end. And it is a plan of redemption that involves altogether and entirely only His sovereign grace. When? I don't know. How? I don't know. Learn to live with some of your unanswered Wise. Our Father, I do pray that you will show your people what, what you showed me earlier in the week. And I pray that if I have clouded it, I pray that you will forgive me, but that you would show them this, what Paul is thinking about your control of history. Show it to them, O oh God. Not, not so that we can all be intellectually uh, superior, but so that we can be comforted. So that we can find the joy and the certainty of knowing that our God rules in the heavens and the earth. Tonight, O oh God, while so many of us are struggling to sleep, would you speak to us, O oh God? Would you speak to us about these truths? Would you remind us that just because we don't have an answer doesn't mean that there isn't one? Would you bury that in the deepest recesses of our souls? Do it, O oh God. Not because we deserve it, but for Jesus' sake. In His name we pray.